Hi, this is Andrea Borcha. And I'm Charles Wilchin. This is Far Stuff. The Internet of Things podcast. This week on Far Stuff. Solid Con 2015 flashback. Ooh. We talk about your excellent trip to the Solid Conference. Yeah, yeah. It was a lot of fun. It was really exciting. There was a lot of uh, really good IoT people there. Um, it was a shame you couldn't make it. I know. I'm very jelly. Uh, but I, I tried to represent us as best I could. I'm sure you did fine. And it, it probably worked out better, actually, <laughs> since I didn't go. Because then we both wouldn't nerd out in two different directions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there was a, a consistent nerding out throughout the process. Like, oh, shiny thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, shiny thing. And I can tell you there were a lot of shiny things. Uh, for example, there was the first ever fully 3D printed car. Uh, which we'll put a picture of, and it looks pretty ridiculous. Neat. Did you bring home the source file so you could print one later? Yeah, definitely. Oh, we, we just need a, a big enough 3D printer. Oh, right. That's the problem. <laughs> and and probably multiple. And then you have to still assemble it. I'm pretty sure the whole thing doesn't get printed in one Man, sitting. what a jip. I know. But it seems to be a thing. They're they're very proud of themselves, and uh, oh, it looks it looks great. We'll, by the way, have pictures up on our blog. Yes, for this podcast, and we'll also have some great links to um, stuff that you should watch if you are in the industry, especially things like um, the YouTube playlist of their uh, of some of their sessions. Yeah, they had some really good sessions. Slide decks for some of those as well. And so definitely go to farstuff.com to check out links after you listen to this episode. By the way, for folks who aren't uh, aware of Solid, it's a hardware, software, and Internet of Things conference put on by O'Reilly. And this year's was in San Francisco at the end of June. Um, It's a lot of really advanced revolutionary technologies. If you're a fan of Farstuff, Solid is definitely an interesting conference for you. So I'm sure they'll continue having it. I definitely want to hit the next one. Yeah, definitely. Next year. O'Reilly seems to be really interested in IoT and, and seeing where it's going and bringing in uh, the next generation of minds. There was actually uh, two kids that won a hardware hackathon and O'Reilly picked them up, flew them out there and set them up with a booth. It was a very generic booth, but it was a place to get them invited and involved with the community and That's cool. kind of get started out. Uh, my name is Mito. Um, we won a hardware hackathon back in Waterloo, Kitchener, uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, we all met. We had this great idea. We started working on it, and we created a fully functioning prototype in two days. Wow. Um, yeah, and now we're excited. We're here. We're starting a company, and we're, just, we're hoping we can finish making this product um, that's really going to hopefully make a difference in the world in these sort of developing communities that don't have access to Internet. Um, and who could definitely benefit from broadband access to videos and that kind of information about agriculture, health, education, and that kind of content that could really make a difference. So uh, tell me a bit about what the product is and how it works. Um, so the product, it's essentially a piece of hardware. Um, you just buy it. It's a mesh network, so you just connect to it. And from your point of view, you just go to your browser. Um, you go to our little search engine that we made. Um, even if you don't have internet access, say you need to search about water sanitation. Um, you could just search water sanitation, and if someone at some point in the past in your city, town, village, community, whatever, has browsed about water sanitation, it'll just work, and now you have that information without having any internet access. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's really cool. So now, um, h- 
how far does the mesh network actually extend that you can uh, basically piggyback off of somebody else's search and the information they've gathered? Um, so uh, it could reach about maybe like, if you think in suburban communities, maybe like 10 houses away. Okay. And then if you have a node at maybe one of those 10 houses, now you can have one of those 10 houses connect to something else around it. And so the idea is you have a, a lot of little intermediate nodes so that even if it's really far away, if they're intermediate ones, it could sort of reach it. And uh, so there are options also to share your internet communication with other people. So now it becomes a lot more affordable for a community yeah. to sort of buy it collectively. Um, there are also, so what this is meant to do is help you work offline. So when you don't have infrastructure or when the infrastructure goes down, um, so if the infrastructure goes down, lots of these countries, their infrastructure runs completely on diesel. So it's really common for it to go down for a few days or even a week. So you can't call anyone, you can't search anything on the internet for like a week or even like multiple days at a time. So what this can do is now you have this sort of mesh network and you can literally make calls on it, you can do chat, and you could do search on it as well. And so it's just working offline completely. That's really cool. So now with um, the development of this product, are you, what, what are your plans? I mean, I know it's still early on, but what are you thinking, you, where do you want this to go? Um, well, timeline-wise, uh, hoping to like get things done as fast as we can, but uh, we're hoping we can get this down on the ground to... Um, so there are already lots of partners and NGOs who already have access to these communities. Um, for example, World Vision is just one, just to name one. Um, and they actually provide entrepreneurial skills for these people as well. But more than that, they help them, um, and they can help get our product to them. So if we collaborate with these people on the ground, and another person on our team, Uche, um, he's worked in Nigeria for many years. Um, he has sort of that first-hand experience of um, the difficulties and the problems associated with getting information out to people in these rural communities. And so what we hope to do is just as fast as we can, create this piece of hardware and then collaborate with these NGOs or like partners on the ground that can help get our product to these people. Um, and yeah, and there are already uh, a lot of microfinancing models out there. We've already considered like a North American model to get it to these people. Uh, but yeah. So. Nice. So with, um, with it piggybacking off the other searches, uh, does, is there a way that it tells you how old that information is, just in case it's been updated, but that person hasn't re-searched uh, for that? Yeah. How does that work? Um, so absolutely. There are, there are a lot of functionality and a lot of features you can include. Um, like it's, the possibilities are really like limitless. You, can, you could do that to have, that could be very important, for example, to see a blog post that's now been deleted, but like to see when it was posted or um, things like that. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of stuff you can build on top of these things and a lot of functionality you can include that would you know, benefit. So another idea we kind of came across and someone sort of suggested was um, maybe you could have some people request for certain content as well because like it doesn't make sense to just store everything. And um, if you think about it, actually, it seems kind of intuitive, but um, communities tend to search for the same thing. So if you have bloggers from a community, people in their, com in their same community are going to want to view their blog posts and they're going to search for similar content, maybe similar language content. Um, and so, yeah, like absolutely. There are a lot of features like that you can include on top of it. So have like timestamps, like this was posted when, right. and this is this old. Uh, so, yeah. So are you thinking with the mesh network that it's primarily for information gathering, or are you seeing it connecting to things that connect to that network as well and somehow advancing the community as a whole into these things space? Yeah. Um, so, again, yeah, absolutely. Like, we're looking, we're considering all of that. And so, um, like we said, you could have, if you have an internet access point, great. Now you have, like, access to the internet, and you can even piggyback off of someone else's, and they could share it with you. Um, and now, like, there are a lot of also internet of things type devices out there for example drones that monitor your farms and um, I know like one research group back in Saskatchewan 
was working on. Uh, so a problem is, for example, calves or your cows, um, when they sort of give birth, they kind of go and do it somewhere off, and then the farmer has no idea where they are, and then they have to go find them and like. So That's like, a bit scary. Yeah, so even <laughs> things like that. So there are lots of like internet of things now related to agriculture, and these can definitely connect to like sort of this mesh network and help you monitor that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, definitely considering that. And like you said, like it's a platform that you can just build a lot on top of. Yeah. And we're starting with this and hoping to really push it and then develop it further. And uh, Are you seeing any, um, expecting any bandwidth issues with uh, the extension of this with the mesh network and how it works and pulling in from that initial? Uh, yeah, so we're not expecting any of that because, um, so first of all, just as a little starting point, when we started this, we knew that these sort of people need broadband more than anyone. And it, people, like, it's not really intuitive. You'd say, like, why? Um, but because maybe they're not, people in these sort of communities might not be as literate as people, you know, in first world developed countries. So if you send them, like, a whole book or a PDF, like, it might not make sense to them. They might not speak English. Um, so they need video. They need audio, um, even in their own native languages. And so they need broadband more than anyone. So they need high bandwidth. And so we knew that coming into this. And that's actually one of the powers of this sort of mesh network approach um, is that there are a lot of different internet uh, gateways, a lot of different paths, and so um, bandwidth isn't an issue. And so there was actually a mesh network set up in Athens, for example, um, with over a thousand users on it, um, and its speeds are set to be up to 30 times faster than the internet there already. And so that, that was something. Pretty some, good. Yeah, it's <laughs> part of the solution. Very nice. So now if uh, people want to kind of follow what you're doing and, and kind of get updates, is there any way to do that yet? Uh, yes. Yeah, so we have a website, tryhitch.com. Okay. Uh, just type in your email and subscribe to our newsletters and uh, we'll keep you updated. Okay, great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah, they, what they do is they, they have this mesh network that's standalone. And if you have, um, <clears throat> it's almost like if your internet's down, you can still, I can still play movies off of my NAS upstairs. Yeah. But when the internet's up, you can access the internet um, either through anyone else's connection, through this mesh. Yeah. Um, so it's great for uh, unreliable internet scenarios. Which is exactly the situation that they were talking about, yeah. um, that the, the town runs on diesel, basically. And so... Yeah, a lot of the infrastructure runs on diesel. And so I imagine the search is distributed amongst everyone who has... Yeah that hardware installed and, and they, they probably provide an interface where people can choose, like these are public searchable documents right? and it indexes those. And there's kind of a, a mesh wide index of it's, documents available. And they built their prototype in only two days. So they're pretty impressive. That's very cool. Group. Uh, so I can see why O'Reilly uh, believed in them to bring them out, but it sounds like they've got really ambitious partnerships that are already interested in talking to them. So hopefully we'll see this thing up and running in a few years. Tryhitch.com. Yeah, the name of it's Hitch. Hitch, because uh, everyone's hitching a ride on, on everyone else's internet. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because when you first said it, there's uh -huh. a small part of me that was like, mm, is that like stealing internet? <laughs> <laughs> but then I was like, no. That's that voice, by we're the gonna, way. We're going to go all communist socialist where we're all sharing the utility. We're hitch, dude. We're all hitching together. How are you getting to the internet? Yeah. We're going to hitch. And I can see how it works in a small community. I mean, it, it, if the internet is so expensive to get it access to certain places, because it's just, there's not the infrastructure there. Right. Then if you could get 10 uh, homes, basically, to all chip into one internet feed and they can all share it and all works well, then... That sounds like a great idea. Yeah. Um, 
you know, a better way to make access to the internet more affordable. And I think access to the internet, unfortunately now has, or maybe fortunately has become a, like it's a commodity. It's, it's, it's a necessary. It's need. Yeah. It's a need. I mean, everywhere like electricity. you can't function without it. You can't, I mean, they all have cell phones out there, but. Um, you know, you asked before whether it's, it's possible that it could make the internet faster. And what I think he may be talking about is it's possible if you have a whole bunch of people with say um, phones with 3g or LTE access it's possible they may be able to do link aggregation, meaning that they could even share their upstream connections. Oh, yeah. And, and so it's it's quite possible it could make the internet faster and um, people could kind of use their mobile devices yeah. to get kind of an aggregated access to the internet. All right, who else did you talk to? Another IoT device that caught my interest was Stack. Um, so I've been, we've both been closely following the smart lighting. So we've been looking at the Philips bulbs and and you've been actually playing around with some, you have some in your home. Um, and uh, I met this guy, Brian Hamilton, who's uh, runs business development at Stack. And he made an interesting point about quote unquote smart lighting right now, that really what it is, is just moving the switch from the wall to your iPhone and people calling that a smart bulb. Um, but what they're trying to do is instead put the sensors in the bulbs themselves. So the bulbs have the computational and conceptual power to assess what's going on in the room and make its own decisions about lighting. Um, they can also use it in retail and commercial spaces to accurately sense how much foot traffic you have. And I mean, it, it, We'll listen to the interview, um, but it it sounded like really taking smart lighting to the next level. Great. <laughs> uh, my name is Brian Hamilton. I uh, run business development for Stack. Um, Stack Lighting is a embedded sensor technology uh, where we're able to embed uh, sensors, radios, microcontrollers actually in the bulbs themselves. So. One of the issues with uh, smart lighting today, quote-unquote smart lighting, is that they aren't particularly smart, they're just kind of controllable, right? So you move the switch from the wall to your phone, um, but you still have to pull out your phone to tell them what to do in order for them to behave the way that you'd like them to behave. So the advancement here is that we've actually solved some of the kind of uh, the thermodynamic problems with putting sensors inside a bulb. Obviously, there's a lot of heat going on in there. Um, a lot of the other, uh, the microelectronics as well. So they all mesh network together, right? Using Zigbee, we'll be moving to the thread protocol here pretty soon. Um, so they all behave appropriately as groups in your home, for example. You screw them in, you turn them on. They know which groups they should be in. And then depending on your preferences, they can respond to ambient light. So if you have daylight coming in your window or your skylight, uh, they'll automatically dim. So they can save 50, 60, 70% over a comparable LED. Not an incandescent, but another LED, um, which, is, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And they also have motion. So, uh, you know, walk into the room, they go on, leave the room, they go off yeah. without having to touch your phone, right? Without having to tell them what to do. So how, how high up can the ceilings be and it'll still uh, sense somebody in the room? Pretty high, up to like 20 feet or so. And really? we actually embed our technologies in other lights as well. So we make consumer formats directly as stack that will, for example, integrate to your Nest thermostat or your Apple HomeKit or your Amazon Echo, right? So that they, they integrate to those those ecosystems in the home. Right. But we also have manufacturing partners that do um, commercially uh, applicable formats. So tube lighting, high bay lighting, wow. uh, PL replacements. 
And those use cases get even more interesting because we also embed uh, Bluetooth uh, radios in these, so we can do some really interesting retail metrics. So if you run a small shop, yeah. we can tell you how many unique visitors you had, how many repeat visitors you had, which products they stood in front of and for how long, because you've got these really cool sensors in the ceiling that can give you all of this information. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And, and you know, from a consumer use case perspective, the... Um, the ability to work autonomously, so they are network connected devices, but they're also the lights in your home. And so, if the hub is out, if the internet is out, if if you know if the internet isn't working, yeah. they still have to behave correctly. And I think that's one of the big problems, and potentially one of the big challenges with IoT in general, right. is that what happens if the internet happens to be out, right? Everything all of a sudden stops working. Uh, and so a lot of what we've done is, is the error handling and kind of what happens if there is no hub, if there is no internet, they still behave correctly. So they remember that they are or are not supposed to pay attention to motion or light and they keep behaving in the right group and they keep doing the things they're supposed to do, yeah. even if they can't get out to the internet. Yeah. And so the big... Uh, the big opportunity, we think, is to actually kind of develop that operating system on the edge of the network for IoT. Um, there's some very specific engineering challenges with mesh networks and embedding sensors in devices that themselves have, you know, heat signatures and other radio interference, and there's, there's a lot going on there. So we actually think we've got a, a really good, solid operating system, um, kind of a full stack, if you will, for, for lighting-type devices on the edge of the network that then connect them to the network but also allow them to work autonomously, right. even if there isn't a network connection. So basically, do you, do you see one of the challenges with uh, smart home adoption and actually just smart thing adoption is the fact that not a lot of things can really think on their own, that they still kind of require human teaching, I guess, training to get it, get it where it needs to be. But these will learn itself about your behavior, what room needs right. what and how that goes. That, that's, a, I think, a huge challenge to the adoption of the Internet of Things. Both, one, you know, the, the smart term has been applied to many things. Right. But it turns out if you don't tell them what to do, they're really just kind of controllable, you know, devices. Um, so we do think that that working autonomously and being able to, you know, download, if you will, some of the machine learning that happens in the cloud where you have lots of processing power down to the actual processors on those devices at the edge of the network so that they actually remember some of what was learned by all of this great cloud data data science processing power. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, one of the things that we've figured out that we hope will be a, a pretty big step forward for some of those devices on the edge of the network. That's very cool. And then for the people that do still want to control it from the other side of the world. Of course they can. They can do that. That's right. So yeah, we have a mobile app, we have a set of APIs, so you can control it from, you know, through your HomeKit interface. Yeah. Um, you know, we have an integration with Nest, for example. We'll tell your thermostat which room you're in and whether or not it runs hot or cold, and we will adjust the thermostat for you because it doesn't know what room you're in, right? right? And so there's a lot of real cool intelligence that having the sensors in that distributed model can yeah. tell the other parts of your connected home, for yeah. example. Uh, and obviously, you know, similar use cases in a commercial building, only much larger numbers when it comes to energy savings and actual impact. Right. Yeah. Do you see any major gaps that still kind of need to be addressed before it can be more readily applied to commercial or uh, consumer worlds? On the consumer side, um, and something that we hope to, to nail here uh, real quick as we launch, uh, price is huge, right? Um, particularly when we think about light bulbs and you got 10, 20, 30 of them in your house, right? They can't be 60, 70, $80 a piece. Yeah. Uh, so we're actually gonna be launching our product here next month at uh, a price yet to be disclosed publicly, but please keep your eye out. Um, <laughs> okay. We think it's gonna be a much, much better product than what's out there today with just the controllable lights at a real competitive price. Okay. And so I think that's one of the hurdles to get it into the average home. Mm -hmm. You've got the tinkerers and the high-end homes that that will pay any price to have this experience, sure. 
but the other 99% of American homes, you know, that's, it's just the price is not competitive. And so we hope to help solve that on the consumer side. On the commercial side, I think it's more um, installation specific, you know, large mesh networks of lights have actual, you know, radio and mesh networking issues. We've worked a lot on that um, with these mesh networking protocols on the different radios and microcontrollers that we use. There, I think those are, you know, big installation complexity, you know, material science specific stuff. If you've got all the lights sitting between concrete barriers, you have to solve some different problems. Um, Turns out the operating system and some of the stuff we've done is really applicable and does solve some of those problems. Um, So we hope we've kind of helped to address a little bit of both. Um, But there certainly are, are some barriers there. And the other devices they connect to also have to be able to perform what they're supposed to do if there is no internet, right? So if you run a large commercial building and the internet goes out, the building still has to run. Um, Same thing with your home, if they're your lights. And so we think we're solving some of those problems at the edge of the network, particularly in sensor embedded lights. Um, But again, we're only one piece of the ecosystem. And so it's only the strongest, you know, or the weakest link in the chain rather. If if the hub doesn't, you know, if the other things don't work that it's connected to when the internet goes out, you may have a problem. In the commercial space, uh, can your bulbs and, and the technology you're using be implemented in existing legacy systems that, like yes. legacy hubs and, and uh, light fixtures, essentially? Absolutely. Okay. So the, the big advancement here is that you just screw these into a fixture. Yeah. That's, right? that's and that's huge difference. because you Definitely. don't have to wire some other sensor or, you know, run another wire around or the building. replace every replace fixture. Replace every fixture. Yeah. So anything that has a screw-in base, we should have a product for a retrofit product so that you can just screw them into your home or screw them into your building or your small business. Okay. Um, that's that's really the market because sure yeah. if you're replacing fixtures and you're running wires anyway yeah. you might be able to do a more you know traditional control system but that's not the case for most people the rental market's a great example yeah. in a, in the consumer use case if you're a renter you're not going to rewire the house you need to be able to just screw them in and have them work yeah um, same thing with like tenant improvement sometimes in commercial yeah. right and so it's a really it's a massive opportunity we think to have it just screw in and work with what's there the, uh, the protocol situation is still kind of a mess, right? So we do have a hub with our lights that speaks, uh, you know, Wi-Fi, Zigbee, Bluetooth, Ethernet. And so it can be the Swiss Army knife of, you know, gateway connectivity to whatever ecosystem you happen to have in the home or building. Um, but in the future, you see this world working hubless. We would love it to be hubless. Yeah. Um, you know, there are large players at play kind yeah. of dictating which hubs and which protocols are going to be used, right? The Apples and Googles of the world right. will fight it out. And so we kind of, in the meantime, have to be Switzerland and work with everything. Um, <laughs> yep, yep. Um, but we would love it to be a hubless world. We, you know, we think that we will get there eventually, but I think those large players will probably be fighting it out for a little while before we get there. Definitely, definitely. So, so where can people go to get in more information when they're ready? Stacklighting.com. Okay. Uh, you can pre-order now. Okay. Um, and again, we'll be uh, we'll be launching publicly here um, at actually a, a bit of a lower price point than you see on our website now. Okay. Um, and so if you do order now, you will get that benefit. So a little bit of a uh, heads up for your listeners, yep. exclusive only on this podcast. (laughs) So uh, yeah, stacklighting.com. Feel free to drop us a note if you have any questions or sign up for the product. And we also, this is a BR30 downlight which fits in a recessed can. We will also have the A19, kind of the classic light bulb you would put in a lamp. Yeah, Uh, We'll have that this fall as well, September, October. Very cool. Thank you so much, Brian. No problem. Thanks very much. So that was interesting because he kind of, he's kind of having to solve a similar problem as the folks we just Listen to, yeah. Listen to, where they need to have a local mesh network that can tolerate the occasionally disconnected situations. Yeah. So that commercial buildings can still, of course, control their lights. And and that's the same problem I have with, you know, Wink, where 
Uh, Wink is great, but they have a, a pretty large dependency on a central hub that assumes a connected environment. Right. And when there's no internet, you can't turn on your lights. Yeah. And that's not no, you not can't, okay. You can't have that. And getting to the point where things can operate independently of needing internet, I think is is probably key when you start infiltrating commercial retail and home environments. Yeah, agreed. Because, you know, it's just not, internet's reliable around here, but but even so, occasionally it does go out. You know, either the router needs to be rebooted. Consumer routers are notoriously flaky. Yeah. Or, you know, cable goes down for a little bit and it's just not okay for that not to work. Yeah, I wonder if at some point you can get to uh, individual pockets of electricity. So if the, the, like a mesh network of electricity with the mesh network of internet and everything just kind of functions independently. Yeah. They have, they've experimented with power line distribution of, of internet. Yeah. And that would be cool. It'd be neat to have a couple different avenues for internet access in your house like right. that, just so you could go and kind of switch to a backup Yeah, or an LTE backup. I know some people have a box in their house that will, Connect to their uh, wireless network in cases where you just absolutely must have right. internet access all the time. Cool. So that's cool. Yeah, these bulbs are expensive. They're 60 bucks. And, you know, he's uh, got a chicken and an egg problem. But the nice thing that they're doing is that they're focused on commercial as well. Whereas he said, there's a lot more tolerance. For price. For price, yeah. because they can demonstrate an ROI that yeah. makes sense for commercial. It doesn't necessarily make sense for home yet. But I think they're trying to get there. It definitely sounded like they want this to be the uh, an equitable option compared to other light bulbs in your house. If if it was buy a normal light bulb or buy this one, you know that that would I think be the ideal uh, future. Well, these are undoubtedly super cool. Yeah. Sixty bucks is tough because there are connected light bulbs right now that are twelve bucks. Yeah. But with all the other sensors, it, it does make a, a ton of sense. And, and these things will be 30 bucks in a year. Yeah. You know, they'll be 15 the year after. It'll, it'll soon, get there. soon it'll, it'll get there. And he did make a good point. You know, in your home, how many light bulbs do you have? So you can't just buy one $60 light bulb and call it a day. No, in my kitchen, I have 10. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's an investment. Yeah. As you're walking through solid, out of nowhere, there's a guy that looks like just this typical surfer that just come whizzing by you on this board that only has one wheel in the middle. Cool. Um, so of course I had to chase him down and figure Did out. Did you literally chase him <laughs> I down? I literally chased him down. I was like, what are you playing with? I want it. <laughs> I love it. Um, so yes, basically it's a board and we'll have pictures. Um, it's a board with one wheel in the middle and it works a lot like this. Sort of like what size? Skateboard size? Yes. It's, okay. it's skateboard size and it works like a Segway in the sense that it has, uh, you know, uh, sensors and all, uh, altimeter and uh, gyroscope and everything to kind of adjust to make sure that you are always evenly uh, planted on this board and that it's always level, even if you're going up and down a hill, because this is invented in San Francisco where there's obviously a lot of hills. It has... Um, uh, sensors to know when your feet are actually attached to the board and it will stop if you detach. Oh, nice. Because of course I being clumsy me asked, so what would happen when I <laughs> inadvertently fall off the board? Which when I would, face plant. <laughs> when I face plant. And they assured me that you are unlikely to face plant because this thing is so stable. 
Um, did you try it? I I did not get a chance to. Uh, oh. There was a couple people there that also were interested in trying it. You have to sign away your life, make sure that you, know, oh, you don't see. sue them for dying. Uh-huh. And, um, but it was. And how did they do? How did the newbies do? They did great. Good. Yeah, I was really impressed. Wow. Everyone was doing really well uh-huh. with it. It's a fun product. Um, it's a little pricey, uh, but I, I think for what it is, it's probably the right price. What I are we talking? Fourteen ninety nine, so almost fifteen hundred dollars. Um, That's a lot for a, a really really cool skateboard, basically. Um, <laughs> but. These guys were just awesome, uh, awesome to talk to, and it, it sounds like a really fun company. And and uh, so let's listen. So my name is Jack Mud, and I'm the chief evangelist of One Wheel. And I like to do awesome things on these One Wheels, and um, and have a lot of fun on them. Uh, my name is Blake Crow, and I do prototyping and design engineering on the One Wheel. And like Jack, I also like to do fun things on the One Wheel. So now, why is this one wheel different than a traditional skateboard or any other, uh, you know, vehicle uh, of this type? <laughs> sure. So, one wheel combines a powerful brushless hub motor inside of a go kart tire, and um, uses algorithms to ba- to balance the rider. Um, and wherever the rider leans, the one wheel will accelerate them. So there's no it's hands free control. There's no remotes or anything involved. Um, it's just this really intuitive uh, riding experience. And it's also very different from skating or really anything else because this, this giant tire is so cushy um, that it feels a, lo- a lot more like riding on snow. So this, this product is actually inspired by um, Kyle Dirksen, who's our founder, is a big snowboarder. And so he was really trying to find that, that powder riding feeling on cement. So that's, that's really the special secret sauce here. Nice, nice. Um, so, can you still do like traditional tricks on it and the kind of more fun, crazy stuff that people like to do? Yeah, so that's part of the fun of the one wheel is we're still discovering what can be done on it every day. So every day we're sort of pushing the limit and trying to see, trying to push each other to see exactly what we can do. Uh, Jack is the inventor of the body burial, which is probably one of our uh, one of our hardest tricks right now, and it's uh, it's it's really fun. Um, and we're sort of comboing that in with some of our other more traditional tricks, like the 180 and making a 180 body burial. And um, and so, yeah, you can take it off curbs. You can ride it on. We ride it on pump tracks. Um, you really can sort of uh, push push the board to be like a more traditional uh, trick style riding. Um, yeah. Nice. And so because it has all these algorithms and uh, it... It basically, can it learn the rider and can it learn how you particularly move on the board and what you, how you interact with it? Sure. So yeah, the, the obvious question is like, why, why are we at solid, right? Like, why is this a connected device? Um, so, so as I mentioned, everything about how it rides is all programmed into the board and it knows everything that's going on, right? So it's actually uh, recording information 14,000 times per second. And that information is being fed into a little controller that we've programmed to act in several different ways. Um, and it spits out this amazing ride. But we can actually change how it digests that information. So we have a, an app, our One Wheel app, um, and it connects to the board and you can actually change what we call digital shaping settings. Um, so that's just changing how the board reads this information. And so we can, we can make the ride feel, we have what we call classic shaping, 
right? It's like a little bit more mellow, good for cruising, you know, maybe you're getting to the grocery store. But if you're looking for that trick riding or some of the stuff that Blake does on the pump tracks, you want to kick it into extreme shaping. Um, you're getting something like 30 to 40% more speed. Uh, the handling is a little looser so you can dive into your turns a little bit more. So there is an incredible um, amount of information being digested and interpreted and, uh, and you can actually customize that. And as we move forward, there will be more ways, more digital shaping settings and, and um, lots of potential to customize to both the rider and to the environment. So you're seeing that uh, because this, you've got the board and you've got the app, that as you guys continue to evolve and learn more, that it can be automatically uh, given to the user, end user. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, through the app, basically, we'd push out a firmware update, and it just pops up on your phone, and you press update, and awesome. uh, like a minute later, your board is like going faster and smoother, and you're happier, life is better. So it's nice. pretty, pretty sweet. So what's this thing's top speed? How, how fast can you go on it? Uh, top speed is about 15 miles an hour right now. Um, and you can go six to eight miles on a charge and it charges up in about 25 minutes. So it's, uh, it's, got, it's got quite a bit of power. Um, and 15 is great because it's sort, of, it's sort of like a bike lane speed. So you can sort of insert yourself in a bike lane in a city and not really be getting in the way but you also can ride it slower and more controlled so it can also be like a sidewalk rider um, so the top speed sort of unlocks like a nice street riding element to it um, that yeah and 50 miles an hour feels very fast when there's nothing under your front foot <laughs> I will assure you so you kind of got this floating air feeling and uh, it's cooking at yeah. 15 and you were saying that the stability allows you to go hands-free, so you can carry stuff, and it will adjust based on this new weight and handle handle everything you kind of throw at it in that respect. Yeah, exactly. Like so, the hands-free controls are are really nice because you can carry things with both hands, and since it's self-balancing, whatever you put on it, it's going to be balancing that for you. So any like you know any weird weird things that you might carry don't really affect your ride. Um, or normal things. Or normal, <laughs> normal things you things. might carry, that yeah. too. Um, yeah, so, you know, hands-free, yeah, like, you can carry stuff. Um, but really, like, what's magical about that is this, it's, it's this very immediate experience. So there's no, um, you're not working through something, right? In order to go, it's literally just, like, what you feel. You know, I, I want to go forward. I just lean my body forward. It's just so intuitive and mindless, completely mindless to the point where um, it's almost meditative. I do I do 100% of my phone calls on the board because I don't have to think about anything, right? It's just like, it's just my, my, I'm going. Like, it's my body. It's hard to explain, but it's just this very immediate experience. And that's what's really so magical about it. So how does it work with the, the sensors on the board? How does it know when you're on it and uh, which way you're leaning and how does that work? Okay, so the, the way our rider detect zone works is um, on one of the foot pads, the front foot pad, um, it's shown by a, uh, a different uh, pattern printed on the grip tape. There are two uh, pressure sensors that activate uh, under your foot. Uh, so to make, the board, to, to make the board work, you step on the two sensors and bring it to a level position. And then from there, you can feel the motor um, click in and start balancing for you. Um, and whatever way you lean forward or back, you go. Uh, to actually get off the board, you bring the board 
back to a stop and you deactivate one of those two sensors by either lifting your heel or sliding your toe. Um, and the board itself works, works, uh, works with an accelerometer and a gyroscope to extrapolate its position. Um, and so using, and then using the algorithms that, that, we, uh, that we've developed, it can always extrapolate you know, the position of the board relative to the ground. Very cool. So now with all these algorithms and all this data you're collecting, have you been finding any surprises as you're crunching the data? Has anybody been using it abnormally or has it taught you something about how people would use something like this and interact with it? Yeah, to be honest, I don't know how much, I, I don't track like people's writing, so I can't really speak to that. But, um, you know, we found, we discover um, sort of, I don't know if I'd call it efficiencies, but like things that make the riding experience better all the time, personally. Um, you know, we part of our job is, is like testing these things into the ground. So we're riding them everywhere you can imagine as hard as possible. Um, and from that, we, we learn a lot about what we need to, to push out there. So yes, we, we can find what, what everyone is doing on the boards. And we also ask people through surveys and, and whatnot. But, um, but I think most of the improvements that we implement are, are from our own, our own findings. Now that might change, um, but for the time being, we are, we are I, in my, I think we're like the hardest testers of these things. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's someone else out there who's like, you know, going harder and dropping higher ledges, but we need to find them. Yeah. <laughs> and at some point, this thing is just going to be part of the X Games too, and then we'll really see what it can do. <laughs> so, so that's the thing is that, um, you know, people think of it as an electric skateboard, but it's actually really different. Uh, it's actually completely different. The riding experience could not be more different. Um, Obviously, this is one single wheeled, um, but what it does is it ch totally changes how it feels. Um, it gives it this snowboard feel instead of this skateboard feel. Um, so we really think that it's its own sport, you know. Uh, and we're we're trying to build a community and an ethos around that as well. And what you know what its capabilities are are totally different, and, and we're exploring that boundary like Blake was talking about. And so it's it's pretty exciting uh, to watch it grow and to and to. Um, see how fired up people are about it. Very cool. So uh, finally, how much is it and where can people find more information? They are $1,500, $1,499 to be exact. They're on rideonewheel.com. And if you're saving up to eventually buy one, but you just want to like see how cool it is for right now, you should follow us at Ride One Wheel on Instagram, One Wheel on Facebook. Oh man, I would love to get something like that. Yeah, the one wheel is, uh, it looks amazing. It's a little too rich for my blood. Yeah, it's a little expensive, but... Uh, but surely it will come down. And yeah. I don't know if you've seen the, um, this board you ride sort of front to back. Yeah. But there's a lot of boards out there that you kind of are, are side to side and you put a, a foot on the left side and a foot on the right side. And they're sort of like segues with, uh, almost without the kind of bar that you hold on to. Right. And uh, those are, there's a ton of Chinese knockoffs. They're about 600 bucks now. And those oh, are supposed okay. to be like 400 bucks by Christmas. Wow. And so this type of thing, yeah. I think will be an enormously popular kind of Christmas gift come this year or next. Definitely. And I'm, I'm sure we'll just, you know, people will have, that will be our hoverboard effectively. Basically, I think that there was a lot of conversations going on about hoverboards when I was at uh, Solid. Not really? only because, well, this is the Back to the Future year. This is back to the future. They go to 2015. 
Uh, so October 25th, 2015 is uh, Marty McFly uh, is apparently on a hoverboard and we are all asking where our hoverboards are. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I want one. So this is just, there was a, another skateboard thing there. I, I just totally picture instead of seeing the kids going around on bikes and skateboards, they're going to go on one wheels and those other boards you were talking about. I just think there's just constant, like the, the snake board was really popular a while back um, where people were like, Oh, right. Sneaking but through things. Right? Not an, not an IOT device. It wasn't per an se, IOT. But, yeah. But yeah, is that, is but that these are, yeah. And it, the one wheel, it looks comfy. I mean, it, it doesn't look like skateboards always kind of freak me out. Cause I feel like you get a lot of the, the road. Oh yeah. No, the, everything. <laughs> yeah. The, but this thing just seemed so comfy. The like one just, wheel has a big fat middle tire that looks, looks cool. very comfortable. Yeah. So, so I kind of liked it. Yeah. I love the fact that you can adjust the performance curves and, and the yeah. feel of it. Well, especially, you know, if you've got people that are a bit more comfortable and want to ride it a little harder and then people are just, I mean, they were talking about using it for commuting around the city. Yeah. Using the bike lane. And so why not? Right. Exactly. No, it looks super fun. Yeah. I, as the IOT kind of gets into more sports and toys, um, we talked about having, you know, the potential of having a tennis racket that can kind of adjust, um, tension dynamically. Yeah. All your sports equipment will have an app and you can adjust, customize it, customize for it. Sure. Yeah. Your skis, if it's uh, icy, if it's powder, you, yep. can, you don't need more skis. You just touch the app. Start to switch them into learning mode. Once you've mastered that, switch them into sports mode. Yeah. Absolutely. I like it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Far Stuff, the Internet of Things podcast. You can find us on the internet at farstuff.com and at farstuff on Twitter. Get in touch with us using the contact form on our site or email us at podcast at farstuff.com. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts because it helps other people find us. To get the best Internet of Things news every week, sign up for our email newsletter at farstuff.com. And this brings us to the end of our thing. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.